You're staying here, so let's do Nehemiah. You're headed for Nehemiah chapter 4. Notes are going to be distributed. While they're doing that, let's see if we can wake up our brains ever so slightly. Name me a job where workers should be clean or at least have clean hands. Let's go that route. Doctors, cooks, nurses, pastors, waitresses. Here we go. EMT, dental hygienist, uh, housekeepers, nurse, cook at a restaurant, dentist, doctor, surgeon. Name a fish you can swallow whole. Sardine, goldfish. I didn't say you, you might, yeah, you'll do it, but what you could. Minnow, anchovy. Here we go. Anchovy, minnow, guppy, sardine, and goldfish is number one. Name a country that ends with stan. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan. There's one more. Uh, is it Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Okay, Afghanistan, Pakistan is the ones that were given. Name a place where wimpy parents let their children act up too much. It, it's public place, public, yes. Yeah. So you got to be more specific than everywhere. Okay. <laughs> a store. Where? Walmart? Okay, that'll be, that'll be included. <laughs> Restaurant, church. Can't imagine that. Restaurants, okay. Funeral? <laughs> Other people's homes, okay. Church, theaters, amusement parks, playgrounds, restaurants, and number one was the Mahler store, or number one was Walmart. Uh, name something you do to pass the time at work. Sleep? I just, I. Take a break, drink coffee. Talk? Okay. Can we, yeah. Text, listen to music, surf the internet, talk. I mean, seriously, shouldn't this be number one? Yeah, just like, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Read. Okay. Um, name something that never seems to work when you need it to. <laughs> Flashlight? Your car? Computer? What'd you say? Snowblower, Snowblower the husband. Here we go. Hubby. <laughs> Can opener, portable generators, sump pump, teenagers. Okay. And number one was flashlight. Uh, okay, name a gift your partner would not really appreciate. Health club membership. <laughs> Are you speaking from experience? No, okay. Appliances? Pots and pans? How about a cookbook? Does that imply anything? Oh, those are good. Those are, those are okay, okay. Here's what they had. A pet. Okay, new clothes, divorce papers. Who? Who would write this as a gift? Okay. Uh, underclothes, appliances, socks, and number one was a vacuum cleaner. Okay. Name a reason people take out a loan. Buy a house. Car. School. School. Home improvement. <laughs> Divorce. <laughs> Since we're talking about that. Okay. I'm doing this one in reverse. Mortgage. Car was number two. School was number three. House renovations was the fourth one. Vacation. And the last one, to pay off other debts. Okay. 
kind of reverse situation. Let's do this. Let's take a couple minutes, okay? Let's do some prayer requests and ask the Lord to bless in certain things. Jonathan, can you speak from there nice and loud? How's your voice this morning? Okay, can you, or we get a microphone to him. Yeah, so listen, prayer requests, and if you can lead us in the prayer time. Okay, so um, speak loud so Jonathan can hear your request and he'll lead us in prayer. Uh, prayer requests, different items that you may have. Let's take a couple minutes and share some of those and then we'll pray as a group. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay, Betty Reinheimer has been having a lot of health issues of late, heart and then some twitching. And uh, so let's pray for her health issues. Anybody else? Other prayer requests that you may have? Yes, sir. Okay, we'll do that. We can, we can handle some praises. Good, good, good. Um, Ron, in the last year... Your, when did your mother pass away? 2000. That seems like just so short time ago. Uh, both of his parents have passed away in the last couple of years. So that's what he's referring to. Jonathan, if you lead in prayer, let's pray for the Keener family. Okay, they're still trying to deal with. Uh, their daughter Olivia passed away two weeks ago in a 20-year-old in a car accident. Um, so pray for them as they go through that. Yes, ma'am, Sandy. Okay. Good. Good. Good, good, good. <clears throat> Excellent. Great, great. Other items to pray about? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see improvement already then. Super, super. Praise the Lord for that, for Sherry's surgery. Improve. Leon just mentioned that he has a knee surgery, knee replacement on Wednesday. Leon, good. Knee replacement surgery this week. So let's pray for him. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Ted's brother Larry passed away this past week. Okay, so let's pray for Larry's family, Ted's brother, Ted Schott's brother. Okay, who we have? Lisa, go ahead. Yeah. Good, good. Okay, let's pray for Vicky's salvation. John, you want to lead us in prayer? Can you yell loud enough? Okay, thank you.
Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate that. Let's do Nehemiah. Let's head over to chapter 4. Well, let's, uh, whoa, what did I just do? There we go. Hit the wrong button. Um, what we're doing, let me, some of you who are visiting with us weren't with us up to this point, and so let me just give a little bit of background, uh, very little, and get right into where we are. We all know, okay, and you've studied, if you study this book at all, Jerusalem and the Jews had walked away from the Lord, and as a spanking measure, God sent in other nations to correct them, to challenge them. Babylon was a nation God used in Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, and so there was three different attacks on Jerusalem. The last one in 586, they were annihilated. They they are dormant for a period of 70 years. And so in 536, they're starting to be able to go back and rebuild. <coughs> the first thing that they rebuild is the temple. And then there's a group of people under Ezra who come in, uh, decades later and they want to start rebuilding the city itself. And what happens is the king, uh, Artaxerxes, he issues a decree and says, you've got to stop building. I heard that you have a reputation of rebellion. He's reading back in the Babylonian records. And he says, you've got to stop. And so he stops them. We think this is the same king that Nehemiah is working for. And so 12 years later, Nehemiah is going to say to the king, hey, my people back in Jerusalem are in desperate straits. They're, they've got broken down, uh, they're like Puerto Rico. All the infrastructure is destroyed. And they're living in that type of situation. I really want to go back. I want to help them out to get some of them rolling and going. And, and again, as we've mentioned several times already, the laws of the Medes and Persians, if, it may, if a king makes a decree, to get, to get a decree reordered is just phenomenal. And so he's risking himself to be able to do that. And so the king says yes because he has confidence in Nehemiah because he was cupbearer, very close. And so he goes back and chapter 2 is basically his return. What he does when he first gets there. How he gets the people together and says, hey, I've got a plan. I've got some preparations to be done and we're going to start rebuilding. We're going to start from the outside. The main infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt in Bible days is not the cell phone towers. Okay, is not the electrical towers, is not the plumbing system. The main thing in old old days was protection, survival. So you build the walls, and so it's uh, building the wall project. They be, they started in chapter three. They finish it in fifty two days, which is absolutely amazing considering all the different details that are going going against them. And uh, when they're into this project, they start off with a lot of people opposing them from the outside. There's a lot of neighbors who historically had been um, under the thumb of the Jews. And now they don't want to be under the thumb of the Jews. They want the Jews to be 
under their thumb. And so you've got the Samaritans that are, brewing, that are growing, the Arabians. You've got a variety of these different tribal groups surrounding Jerusalem that say, we don't want it to be started. So they're going to put pressure on the Jews in the work project. They're going to threaten. They're going to try to stop them. And so from without, the opposition that we talked about last week in chapter, uh, beginning in chapter 4, chapter 3, by the way, is the building. It's all the listing of who's building. Chapter 4 starts talking about the opposition. There's mockery. You can read verses 1 through 6 while I, while I meander here. Um, they, uh, they say that even if a fox jumped on the walls that you're building, they're going to collapse. You'll never get this thing done. And so they're mocking them. And then it turns into more serious uh, comments because the work continues. The mockery doesn't work. So now they're threatening. And the threats come in the form of, of and it's listed down there, if you look in chapter 4, down in verses 6 through 9. I should probably get to Nehemiah. I don't know why I'm in Habakkuk. <laughs> okay. Uh, there we go. Uh, if you look there in chapter 4, I know why. My binding of my Bible broke and Habakkuk's ready to fall out. Anybody ever have those problems where pages fall out? Okay, and you hope you're not under judgment because, you know, taken away. Um, it talks about as they're building a wall down in chapter 4, verse 6, 7, it lists out the different people. And we mentioned last week in verse 7, if you look at those people and talk about, they are the ones that are located totally surrounding Jerusalem, the east, west, north, south. And so it increased. The threats start getting more vicious. You read down a little bit that it says that uh, they, come, they want to fight in verse 8, and they say that they're going to come in, and you read down it. It says, um, down in verse 12, it says, From all places, once you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. And they're going to come and they're going to basically fight against everyone. And so they have the physical threats. Then it leads into something more. Because the people are threatened, they're being mocked, it starts developing into discouragement. And there we read the thread, the problem in verse 12, 10, where it says, The strength of the bearers of the burdens is decayed. There's much rubbish. If you go back to uh, verse six. They're halfway through the project. And so that's when the discouragement settles in and the people at this halfway point and they're tired, their strength is failing. There's a lot to be done. They've accomplished a lot, but there's still a lot to be done. You know how that is. And so um, they're wore out and they believe the threats that they're hearing from outside are real, more than just a threat. I mean, Elijah is threatened by Jezebel. But remember that story when she says if, you know, um, you're going to be as the prophets that you just slew, First Kings 18, you're going to be like them by tomorrow morning. Well, if she really wanted to kill Elijah, what would she have sent instead of a note? She would have sent the, the, the assassin. Okay, if she wants to really kill him, so she sends a note instead and says, I'm going to kill you. Well, if you, yeah, kill him then. So the note was sent for one reason, to get him to run, because if you kill him, he becomes a martyr. If you get him to run, he becomes a yeah, yeah, he's just whatever term you want to use. Okay, yeah, so then he's just a poor testimony. And so in this case, they start thinking these threats are real. They're tired. And you know how it is. When you're tired, the bills are bigger. Yes, no? Okay, the paycheck seems smaller when you're tired and wore down. Um, the, uh, the pile of laundry that you have to iron, is it bigger when you're tired? Yeah, the diapers seem like... <gasps> They never cease in the middle of the night, okay? And so we understand how that works. And so the people are getting discouraged. They're getting, they're getting anxious. Now, here's the catch where we left off last week. How does Nehemiah, as a good leader, 
as a good example, what does he do to keep the people focused? How do you keep, you know, none of you have ever done this with the little kids. Our kids, when they were little, they used to do this thing. When I would be talking to them, they'd be looking, because I would always say, look me in the eyes. And they'd look me in the eyes for about two seconds. That's good. Okay, that, that's, that's more than what I usually got. And then they would be kind of doing this. And while I'm trying to talk to them, I think I said more than anything else, look me in the eyes. Look me in the eyes. And then we would do this one thing where you just kind of, you ever put, want to put blind, binders, blinders, whatever you call them, on your kids? You know, just so they stay focused and look at me. Look at me. Stay, stay here. Just look at me. And um, so, you know, he's going to try to get them to look. He's got to try to focus them. What does he do? What does he do when you feel worn out? What do you do? He, what he does is really amazing. In dealing with the threats and discouragement, how he rallies the people, how he keeps them focused, which is really, an, really for those of you in business, some good thoughts here. For those of you in leading you know, a work group, leading a Bible study, leading a family, some good stuff here that Nehemiah does. One, he rallies the people. He does, we're going to give you ours here for the sake of alliteration. Verses 13 and 14, he pulls the people together, and he's going to be talking to them. It says, Therefore set I in the lower places behind the walls, and on the higher places I even set the people. And um, he's talking about how I got them together. I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles, to the rulers, to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great, terrible, and by the way, terrible means awesome, which is great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. It came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us that God had brought their counsel to naught that we returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth, half of my servants, they were in the work. The other half, they held the bows, the spears, the, the, all the weapons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They were building on the wall, and they were bare, they that bare burdens with those that laid it, everyone uh, with Everyone, everyone with one in his hand wrought in the work and in the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side. So we built it. And he that sounded the trumpet was next to me. I said unto the nobles and to the rulers, to the rest of the people, the work is great and large. We're too far separated around the wall, one far from the other. So in what place there if you hear the sound of the trumpet, resort or come rallying to unto us, our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, I said unto the people, let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard for us and labor on the day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes. Pew. Saving that every one of us put them off. Well, there we go. They put them off for washing. That's good. So he's rallying the people. Now, here's the point. He doesn't say, I pulled all the people together. It just, he just goes on and says, I talked to the nobles, the rulers, the people. Which is obvious. He pulls them together he talks to him, and he, so he takes a time out. You're so busy at times. Do you ever happen? You're so busy that you don't want to take the time out to sharpen the tool. And what's the what's it happens? Yeah, you're going to keep on trying to work. Okay, I'm so busy. I don't want to refill the printer with ink. I just want to keep the printing going. Well, then what happens after a period of time? It doesn't work. Okay, and so he knows that in the busyness, and it's got to get done quick because now there's the pressure. But I got to stop. I got to take a time out and say, we got to talk about something. We've got to talk about, you know, what do we do in case of the attack? And what he does is he stands, remember he said, I had their family stand? It's a visible reminder. What's, it, what's that basically do? Has your kids stand up in front of you and he's saying, you better fight for 
them. Okay, he brings them and he rallies. He brings the people, gives them the incentive. And um, the whole idea is, okay, we've got to be working. This is more than about me. It's about us. Very important concept. Very important concept. You, rob, you rally and you get people to see what, what picture, do we always say? Get to see the big picture. The big picture. Okay. Because oftentimes, what picture do we only see? Ourselves. Okay. And so he rallies them. Let me point something else. He reminds them of God. You and I, you know, we at times in the middle of trials, we need to be reminded God is big. Because sometimes the trials, and we know it theologically, but sometimes we feel like God has deserted us. And so he takes the moment and says, you know, let me remind you about God. He is great. He is awesome. Our God is amazing, and he's larger. He says this, our God will fight for us. Now, I understand that people that are threatened oftentimes, they invoke the name of God. We, we were talking with somebody. I forget the situation here. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember now. We were talking about how, uh, what's going on in Spain right now. In between Spain and Barcelona, and it's coming down to could there be revolution and stuff in the streets. And uh, so we made comment about that, that both sides are claiming God is on their side. Okay, and so they're, they're invoking God. Did they ever do that in the United States? Did they, during any problems in the United States, do different sides invoke God is on our side? Civil war, listen and read the sermons from the Civil War. I'll take you back even further. Okay, read some of the, the writings of the revolutionary period. Both sides, both those who were the Tories and those who were what we call the patriots, both sides invoked God's, God's name, and they used verses that said this was the cause that God is on. Um, and so sometimes that happens. Is Nehemiah legitimately and properly claiming God being on our side? Is it really true in his case? It is. Why? It's the Jews. It's the Jews in the Old Testament era. Is it true that God would fight for them if he is leading them in a certain direction? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, did God at times not fight for them and let them get walloped? Yeah, yeah, in a disciplinary fashion. But he is confident this time God is leading and he's got the direction going. And so to say that God will fight for us, that's very legitimate. And it's very important for the people to remember that we are the people of God and we have his temple there and that they rely upon him, not get snotty proud over it. And that did become their issue, wasn't it? We are the people of God, therefore... We're better than anybody else and we don't have to take the light to them. That became some of their issues. But what he's doing is he's reminding them of some facts. God is for us. Um, there's a story. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. You, you, any of you hear Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King. Okay, I'm talking Martin Luther back in the Middle Ages. Okay, and it's a lot of the movement of the Reformation. One day he's in his uh, study and he's working and uh, it's been a terrible, terrible, you know, period of time the last few weeks. And his wife came in and she was wearing morning clothes. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Not early day, but grieving clothes. And he asked her, you know, what's going on? Are you going to a funeral? She says, I think so. He goes, well, who died? She says, God. He said, what? God didn't die. And then she turned to him and said, well, then act like it. Okay. Uh, because sometimes don't we act like 
God is dead, okay? And so uh, that's what's happening here. Nehemiah is saying, come on, folk, God's not dead. Let's keep this. Then he readies the people. It's that old saying that we read back from the colonial period. Trust God and keep your powder dry, okay? You, you have that every day. You know that God will provide your needs, but what do you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? You go to work, okay? Um, And you do your part. That's what he's going to get the people to do. He's saying, okay, we've got to ready. We can't just say, God will take care of this. Let's just sit back and do nothing. So he gets the people ready, and we already read what he does is he assigns different people at different spots to say, okay, you're a guard. You stand here, and I want you to just be a guard. Half of you, and it's his, remember, the king sent personal guards with him? Okay, and so here he comes, and he's got half of his guys, as he says, they're standing on the walls that are being built. They're, they're elevated. He makes it clear that they're standing high. Why? Why does he have them standing high? Yeah, they want to see over to, for what benefit? See the enemy, because the enemy's talking about how we're going to creep in, and they're going to be on guard. Is there another purpose for this? Be seen by the enemy as a deterrent, okay? Is there another reason for this? I think there's three. To see, for the people to see them, because how would the people then respond? Okay, we're being protected, okay? And so it has multiple, it has multiple purposes, one for real defense, one for encouragement, and one for a deterrent. And so he's very wise in what he does, that you and I can figure this out, okay? It's not real, real bizarre, and it's not beyond our abilities to think that through. But then what he does is, as well, he arms the people who are working. So remember how it said, everyone who's got the trowel in one hand, they got the sword in the other, and they're, they're able... Okay, so if enemies are coming and mocking, they're seeing that the people are armed as well. What will that be? A deterrent once again. So he's, uh, he's preparing himself, okay? He's readying the, the people. Plus he establishes a better system. There was the implication in verse 22, if you read it, he says he has the people come and move in the city. Apparently a number of the nobles and a number of some of the people were living still outside the fort, Okay, and he says, okay, now at night you're coming and staying inside the fort. Okay, that's going to provide them better protection. Okay, obviously. What else does it do? Well, it provides better protection for everyone because now your force has increased. And he says that some of those people are going to stand guard at night. They're going to be part of the night watches. So he's very wise in setting up the defenses that are very necessary at this point. In fact, he then sets up an alarm system, okay, and that's that trumpet blowing. Wherever you hear the trumpet, you come rallying to this spot because there's a breach in the wall at that spot. So he's preparing the people. He's got them going, and he's making sure that everyone knows the plan, Okay, what does that say? None of you are left alone. None of you have to face the enemy all by yourself. You will have help. Is that important to let people know that there's backup teamwork available to them? Yes, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it's in a work project, whether it's in a renovation project, whether it's in going through a crisis, going through, going through a loss of family members. Is it important to know that there are people willing to cover your back? Yeah, yeah. And so he does that, okay? He's, he's got this whole idea of group commitment. And I think what's amazing in this whole story, and you've already read it, a lot of you were looking up there already, that he has no, there's no class distinctions here. Everyone rallies to everyone, 
and everyone covers everyone's back. That is so different. What, what, what entity does it remind you of, modern entity, that everybody is to be working together at all levels of class, race? Local church. Church idea that we're supposed to all be contributing. We're supposed to all be covering one another's you know, backside. We're supposed to be giving some people assistance. We're to be rallying when there's a need. Boy, it's, the concepts are absolutely amazing. He does something else. He refuses to quit the work. He doesn't let the discouragement, he doesn't let the people's comments, he doesn't let that just say, okay, it's just getting too much, I quit. Um, they split the job, in fact. They start, you know, okay, we've got to defend, but we're going to get the work done, and we're going to labor, even though it's going to be a little bit inconvenient. We're going to do this, we're going to really push through. Do any of you ever have this, that at, at certain times of the year, your employer says, extra hours to get us through this really busy time? Okay, and so you say, okay, that's there. We have to do that at times. And it's good for us to be able to work together. Um, they also, if you remember reading, they say we're going to work from the rising of the sun till the going down of stars. They're committing themselves to putting the extra hours to say, let's get this done ASAP. The sooner we get it done, the safer we will be. Okay, and so uh, they're focused on that. And then again, I already mentioned, he moves some uh, laborers from outside and into the city. Hey guys, you're living in town. You've got to get this done before you're going to go back outside to town. So let's work on it. And uh, then, you know, it makes the con- he makes comment, we labored. We labored, okay? Nehemiah, I think, is a classic illustration of what we should do if we really want to impact people. We should get involved doing it. Not just talking about it, but doing it. Doing what we can. Uh, and so he gets involved with the work and the project at hand. There's one other idea. He reorganizes priorities. Okay? Because the problem, he has to pause and say, okay, what is really important here? Let's deal with the most important issues. We talked about this a few weeks back. That if uh, you're dealing with trying to train your kids, you've got to deal with what's the real important issue right here. Instead of dealing with ten issues, let's deal with two or three and keep it simple. And uh, so he reorganized. Obviously, he gives up some of his personal comforts. Okay, that he says, okay, we got to get this job done. I've got to give up some personal comforts. None of us took off our clothes. In other words, we're sleeping. We're just, we're trying to focus. We're going to work really hard to get this done. He asked others to do the same thing, including nobility. The nobility had a rally to this. And so everyone, come on, let's, let's everyone do the work. Let's not leave it to just a few. And he asked them to work longer hours. Why? Because this project needed it. It's for the safety of family. And once we get it done, then we can go back to normal routine. And as a result of this, the people have a mind to work. They work, they get back to doing the project, and they're moving forward. But it doesn't mean the problems go away. Okay, what happens is there's going to be a whole new set of problems that arise in chapter 5. Let's pause. Okay, let's talk for a moment. Let's make application. We're going to face opposition, okay, whenever we attempt something for the Lord. It's going to happen. Okay, you try to raise your kids. You try to be a witness. You try to, uh, you know, stand for the Lord against something that's wrong. You say, okay, at work I'm going to be, have a life of integrity and you get pressure that you should lie and fall. You, you say at work, I'm going to work the hours I'm supposed to work. And the coworker says, no, you're making the rest of us look bad. Um, the bigger your effort to try to honor the Lord, the bigger the opposition. The opposition can come from within or without. Oftentimes it's going to come uh, from without and mark it down. 
want, it will come. That was Jesus' whole message to the disciples. I leave, they're going to treat me the way they treated you, you're going to have opposition. Uh, those who succeed are those who keep their focus on the Lord. They say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I can't please everyone. Not everybody's going to like it, but I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to have stubborn faith good faith in, in good things, okay? Not to be stubborn in, in everything because uh, th- then that's, that's pride on our part. But rather, the areas that God has wanted me to do, I'm going to focus. Don't let others sidetrack you from doing the work of the Lord that He has called you. Just keep focused. Do the work that God has called you to do uh, for you with your gifts and talents. Be on guard for the enemy's attacks at all times. Discouragement is a powerful tool in Satan's arsenal, but it doesn't have to be terminal. That's how you respond to it. Okay, and handle it. When serving the Lord, we must set an example for others to follow. We have to have an example like Nehemiah did. He's going to do it. He's going to work. He's going to set the example of saying, praying, persevering. Here we go. We're just going to be focused. Prayer is essential to overcoming all these oppositions. As even Nehemiah, he ends up with that whole thought that he asked the Lord, you know, saying our God will fight for us. And so they're laboring. And he even prays that the Lord would turn this on their head we talked about uh, that, how he prays that prayer in chapter 3, chapter 4. And uh, yet it's so easy. It is so easy to get caught up that sometimes, sometimes we just start losing in a prayer. Um, Gene Getz is a Christian author. He has a commentary on Nehemiah. And he writes, and I, I thought this was so challenging to me, I wanted to share it with you. So let me bore you while I read to you for a moment. He says, one day, Getz writing, one day at a Christian booksellers convention, my wife and I had the privilege of meeting African pastor F. Kifa Sambanji. And when we read his book entitled The Distant Grief, the real story behind the martyrdom of many Christians in Uganda under Idi Amin's reign, the mark went deep into our souls. The pain was so deep we shed tears over some of the stories. Our response was uh, not so much related to these Christians' horrible experiences which often resulted in excruciating pain and death, though I must admit there were times that I read what, what I read, I did feel sick to my stomach. But the real impact upon our lives came as we became aware of our own apathy as Christians. Our tendency to take God's love for granted, to become selfish, to complain about the little things and little discomforts that don't always go our way. Kifa himself was often the target of Amin's terrorist activities. Eventually, he escaped from Uganda with his daughter and wife. Though he was willing to stay and continued to minister to the church that had swollen to a congregation of 14,000 at the height of the persecution, he was ushered out of the country by others who were not so directly under the attack as he was. God delivered him from his enemies in in a story that's miraculous. He was able to leave with only minutes to spare. Through some previous contacts, he was able to come to the United States where he was continuing his theological training. While here, he set up a special foundation to help care for those in Uganda whose lives were uh, spared, to help care for their immediate needs, to educate the orphans, to help whole families, to get their feet back on their feet economically. Part of the story that gripped me the most was his story about what he experienced here in the United States where he wasn't persecuted. He wrote, this is now this gentleman's words. Our first semester passed quickly. Panina, his wife, gave birth to a son. He says the name and I can't read it. In the fall, I returned to my studies. It was then in my second year in the States that I noticed a change had come into my life. In Uganda, Panina and I read the Bible for hope and life. We read to hear God's promises, to hear his commands and obey them. There had been no time for argument nor religious discrepancies to be discussed or doubts. Now in the security of America, 
in the security of a new life and with the reality of death fading from our mind, I found myself reading scripture to analyze the text, to speculate about their meaning. I came to enjoy abstract theological discussions with my fellow students, and while these discussions were intellectually refreshing, it wasn't long before our fellowship revolved around ideas rather than the work of God in our lives. It was not the blood of Jesus Christ that gave us unity, but it became the agreement on all these issues. We came together not for confession and forgiveness, but for debate. The biggest change that came into my life when I came to America was my prayer life. In Uganda, I had prayed with a deep sense of urgency. I refused to leave my knees until I was certain I had been in the presence of the resurrected Christ. It was not just the gift that I needed. I needed the giver. I needed to know that the God of the orphans, the widows, the God of the helpless, that he heard my prayers. Now, after a year in Philadelphia, the urgency was gone. When I prayed publicly, I was more concerned to be theologically correct than to be in God's presence. Even in private, my prayers were no longer the helpless cries of a child. They were spiritual tranquilizers, thoughts that made no contact with anything outside of themselves. More and more, I found myself coming to God with vague requests for gifts that I did not expect. One night, I said my prayers in a routine fashion and was about to rise from my knees when I heard the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. It was as if he said, Kepha, who are you praying to? What are you praying for? What is it that you want? I used to hear the names of children in your prayers, the names of friends and relatives. You used to pray for Okello, Topista, Dr. K, Ali, for Nagasai, Nagasai and your father. Now you pray for the orphans, the church, the refugees. Which refugees? Which believers? Which orphans? Who are these people and what is it you want for them? It was a sharp rebuke that came to my spirit. As I fell again to my knees and asked for forgiveness for my sin of unbelief, I knew that it was not just my prayers that had suffered. It was not just a bad memory that caused names to vanish from my mind and turn those closest to me into abstracts. God himself had become distant. He had become a subject of debate, an abstract category. I no longer prayed to him as a living father, but as an impersonal being who did not, need, did not mind my inattention and unbelief. From that night on, my prayers became specific. I prayed for real people, real needs. It was not long before, and once again, with the needs on my mind, that I started to have a refreshing time with God Almighty. The end of his quote. We're back to Getz. Writing, for those of us living in the United States, the lesson is clear. How much does God really mean to us? How real is he? How meaningful is our Christian experience? How easy is it to be lulled to sleep by the comforts of life, the blessings of life, the freedoms of life? And before long, we operate like mechanical Christians without hearts of compassion and without a sense of urgency. If Kepha found himself being lulled into a state of complacency in one year, after experiencing years of persecution and attacks on his own life, how easy then is it for us who know nothing of what it means to suffer because of those who hate us and the Christ we serve. Don't misunderstand. I don't believe we should feel bad because God has blessed us. But I believe we ought to feel bad if we're not thankful. I believe we should feel bad if we're ungrateful. I believe we should feel bad if we're selfish and unwilling to share and help others. I believe we should feel bad if we're only academic followers of Christ. The scriptures are clear. God wants us to be Christians who see beyond affluence, luxuries, freedoms, and see our God who cares for us and who cares for others. He wants us to see himself, a God who wants to fight for us, help us not to become enmeshed in materialistic and immoral world that dulls our sensitivities. He wants us to fellowship with him. I found that very convicting. 
very challenging to say, okay, it's easy for us to be, to be drifting off. And maybe that's why Nehemiah, and they had all this opposition, was just to keep them sharp, to keep them honed. Maybe that's why God keeps us in some of our struggles and battles and problems. Some of it is our stupidity. But maybe God really wants us to be on our knees a lot more than what we tend to. And Nehemiah, he's a good example that says, hey, you know, remember you're not alone when facing opposition and problems. You have God who is with you and you have other believers who can back you up. And that's his point of this whole story that what we're supposed to be doing is working as a body, working as a team, helping one another, running to the Lord and becoming not one of those who is critical and one of those who is negative but seeing these problems, these issues not as obstacles but as opportunities and coming to the Lord. So Nehemiah is facing and handling this thing right. He's moving forward. He's got the people then rallied and they're ready. They're starting to move forward and then chapter 5 comes. You think that they resolved everything but that's not what happens. Chapter 5 opens up a whole other section that nobody wanted to deal with. It's a new problem. It's another problem and it's a problem from within. Now they've had a little bit within. They had some of the Jews come to them. We read in chapter 4 where some of the Jews living outside the city came and said, oh, you're in trouble. They're going to get you. And they came 10 times. We read in chapter 4 down in verse 10, 11, 12 that there, those, those were his inner discouragement. But go to chapter 5. Watch what happens. They, they're now back to the work. They're working, you know, the 15-hour shifts. They're not changing their clothes except for once in a while. They're not bathing on a regular showered, you know, everyday basis. And all of a sudden he runs into this problem. There is a great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren of the Jews. For there were those who said, we, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up the corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, houses, that we might buy the corn because of the dearth. There were also those that said, we have borrowed money because of the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and the vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children, as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to become servants. And some of our daughters are brought to, into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men now have our lands and vineyards. What's the problem? What's, he's, he's describing something that's going on between the Jews, Jews on Jews. Uh, let's see if we can put it this way. Okay, you've got conflicts between the Jews, those who are in the city, outside the city. There is also a physical problem going on. There's a famine in the land. That's the dearth. So not only do they have opposition from people threatening them, but now the crops have failed. And so we're trying to build, and we're trying to get the harvest in, and we're trying to feed our family, and it's becoming a little bit too much. And the problem is there's not crops that the, the trees aren't overflowing with fruit. And many had to stop the work to go get grain because grain was becoming rare. And that means you have to go farther and farther from the city to be able to get the grain so you could have food for your family. And on top of it, some of the people, in order to buy food, they had to sell their land. Now think with this. Think this through. A Jewish young person selling his land... How different is that for you and I selling land? Okay, it's totally different. Why? Okay, it's God's, it's God's personal possession given to them. Okay, this is their inheritance from generation to generation. So when they are giving up their land, they're giving up some of this identity and some of their tie to the people. This is big time stuff for them. 
bigger than for you and me, so to speak. Plus, they have to pay taxes. The Persians, the Persians are, aren't there just for the sake of being there because they want to be peacekeepers throughout the world. The Persians want to make profit off this. They waged war so that they could take over these lands. And so they're requiring taxes to be paid. And if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to lose your property. So some of these people are borrowing money to pay taxes. If they're bar- having to sell their land... That means somebody around there is able to buy it. If they're borrowing money from somebody, it means somebody around there has money to loan. Okay? And that's not evil. That's not bad. But it can become evil and bad because of what they mentioned when they said, our daughters and sons are becoming servants. What was happening is some people were loaning the money. Some people was helping them out. They weren't able to keep up with the payments. And so because they weren't able to keep up with the payments, the people who loaned the money was calling in the debt. And if you can't pay money, what happens? You give up your land, and if you have no land, what do you start giving up? Your children become indentured servants or slaves, okay? And so that's what was going on. They're losing the inheritance. They're, they're having to sell themselves or their kids into an indentured situation. And uh, now they've got a problem, okay? And so the problem is the, the, the nobility, some of those, and remember some of the nobles don't have a mind to work. We already read in chapter 3. Look what it says in verse 7. I consulted with myself, I rebuked the money makers and the rulers and said unto them, you're exacting usury, every one from his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. Woo. Okay, Nehemiah's got a problem here. He's got the big money bucks in the work. They are taking advantage of the situation of everybody else. They are like um, the carpet beggars. Yes, does that make sense? After the Civil War, land was at a discount. Come in, and you can you can all of a sudden take over a large amount of property. These guys were these guys were taking over a large amount of property. They were taking over the people. These rich people were getting richer at the expense of the people who are just trying to survive, and especially those who are trying to do the work. And so Nehemiah's got to deal with them. What he does, okay, his initial response, look at verse 6. What is he, his initial reaction? Oh, angry. Does it say he got angry? He got very angry. Okay, so his initial response is he is ticked. He is absolutely livid over what's going on. And then he brings everybody together and he's going to rebuke these guys publicly. Now we all know, okay, you never go public. You're going to agree with that? You, you say no. Okay, so, what's choice? Sometimes you have to go public. Sometimes you have to go public. Why? Because if it's a public situation, you deal with it publicly. Okay? And so there's a process, and his process was, man, days this is so well known, this is so out there. We've got to deal with this, and I've got to deal with it publicly. So what he does is he goes to him. Now, for you and I to make sense of all this, we've got to do this. Okay? Watch Old Testament law. Te- Old Testament law, could the Jews loan money? Yes or no? Okay, could they, could they borrow money? Could they charge interest? You clarified it. Not against another Jew. Okay, here's what's spelled out. Deuteronomy. Okay, it's not wrong for the Jews to lend money to non-Jews. Okay, that's clear. 
In fact, they could lend money and they could charge interest to a non-Jew. So we've got to be clear about this, okay? If we were to go to another text, if we were to go to Exodus 22, we would find it's not wrong to lend money to a fellow Jew. And it's not wrong to ask them to pay it back. Okay, that's not wrong. That's not wrong, okay? Leviticus, it was wrong that you would demand this usury interest on top of the money that you loaned. Okay? Then it became a wrong situation. And it was always wrong that if they were defaulting that you would all of a sudden enslave another fellow Jew. It's, you can't enslave another fellow Jew. You're not supposed to do that. Why? If you read the text, if you go back to Leviticus and read the text, do you, do you take a gander, take a guess at this. What story does he take him right back to? Egypt, what? What part of it? Yeah, yeah, keep on coming. Keep on coming with it. Right, okay. Take it a little bit farther chronologically. What part of their slavery does he always point to and say, you can't enslave another Jew because of what happened has to do with the slavery in Egypt? The what? The Exodus. The Exodus. He always takes them to the Exodus. They were redeemed from the slavery and therefore they are free people not to be enslaved again because they belong to who? Who freedom? You can't, you, that, that's my property. You know, um, you know, God and the Jews, they're my people. They're not your people. You don't enslave one another. Okay, and so, he, by the way, does he ever bring this concept that we are owned by him and that we are not supposed to become enslaved by anything else? Does that sound familiar to the New Testament believer? Yeah, it's that same idea. <clears throat> same idea that what he's doing is he's saying, okay, you can't do this. This is wrong. And the law was specific about it. So Nehemiah, as we already said, he got very angry. His actions where he took this very public, called the people together, and he's going to really chew them out openly. His accusations, look at verse 8 and 9. He says two things to these nobles. That is very pointed. What do you have? Hmm. Actually, let's go into verse 9. That's probably more, more what's he say first of all? in assessing what they've done. First part of verse 9. It's not good, yeah. It's not good that you do. And then he says, you ought to walk in the fear of God. Okay? So basically his accusation, you guys, you guys are not doing what's right and you don't fear God. Shame on you. And so he's very pointed in his comments here at this point. And then he handles this. Okay, and he rebukes it. Now, let me let me just before we go into all the specifics, let's do a general thing. Okay, um, though he's upset, he's got self-control. There's no indication that he you know that he starts mobbing these guys, beating the you know proverbial snot out of them. He does it doesn't. That's not the thing. Okay, what he does, he's self-controlled, but self-controlled enough to say we got to deal with this. This is a public matter, and I'm really angry with what you did. Okay, because it was wrong. He addresses the problem. I think this is critical for you and me. He addresses the problem. It is too often we get upset and we say, oh, well, nothing, it'll ne- why bother dealing with it? Why bother saying anything? It won't do any good. He doesn't do that. He doesn't climb into a hole and bring the shell over him and have the, he deals with the problem. 
He deals. Now, I don't know about you guys. Okay, when we raised our four kids, there was moments that it was like, ugh, it, uh, it's not going anywhere. It's just not going anywhere. So why even address it? I've tried and it doesn't change. They're, they've got Carlson blood in them. So did any of you ever feel that way as parents? And you can't. You can't. You still have to repeat. You've got to go and deal with it because that's the right thing to do. Okay, and so Nehemiah deals with it. He deals with it. He points it out the best he can. He deals with the, excuse me, he deals with them directly. Okay, remember now he's going to do it publicly, but he's going to deal with them directly. He's going to deal with them personally. He has a plan. He's going to offer a plan here in the next couple of verses. We'll look at in a second. He gives them a plan of how to correct this. Okay, so he's very clear about it. He is dealing with an offense. Now here's the point. He stopped the work to deal with an offense. He stopped the work. What does that tell you about dealing with an offense? It is really important. Did Jesus ever reiterate this same concept? Did Jesus ever say, stop something and deal with the offense before you return to that something? I have something clearly in mind from Matthew 5. Do you know what it is? Yeah, the act of work. Oh, communion. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking Acts, uh, in, in, I said Acts, I think. Matthew 5. Stop coming before him in worship, deal with it, and then get back to worship. Communion, you got to be able to, it's a classic illustration of the thing. You got to deal with the offense before you just say, oh, well, we're just too busy to deal with the problem. You got to deal with the problem. And so Nehemiah, what he does is he says, okay, I'm going to deal with it. Now, in all of this, Nehemiah has a real sense of justice. Okay? By the way, can I, can I throw this out? Who's Nehemiah's people in this, in this setting? You got the nobility, we'll put the, the hoi polloi nobility right here. All the rich people. And we'll put the majority of the people who are just surviving, just trying to get by. Where categorically is Nehemiah? Is his class this folk or these people? He's part of this group. How do I know that? Read the last few verses. He's governor, and he's, he's got a lot of personal wealth. Okay? Because he feeds everybody. At, from this point on, he's going to end up feeding a lot, of the, a lot of the household of those who are protecting the people. He's going to pay out of his own pocket. If he's paying for, out of his own pocket, he's got a pretty deep pockets. Okay? These are his people. And by the way, in most situations, who gets more say? The rich or the surviving people? The people just survival. Who in most societies has the say, the influence? The rich. Okay. Where does Nehemiah's, where does his sympathies fall? With the poor. Not because they're poor, but because it's right it's right because of there is wrong being done. He sides with what is just and proper. Not just because I'm against rich and people being rich. That's not the point. He's against abuse by those who have authority and the ability to abuse. And he says, what you're doing is wrong. You've got to stop it. And he lays out a plan of how you've got to stop it. And then they say, we'll do it. And he says, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You're going to do it. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna make a vow and he's, the next few verses are amazing what he does. They say something, they say they're going to stop, and he's going to take it a little bit further. 
as you read. Okay, I got to stop. Okay, we'll take it a little bit further next week. But dealing with and being sensitive in those areas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your input.